0: Food insecurity is something we know exists in North America and around the world. It hasn't gotten a lot of attention during the pandemic. We heard some early concerns around supply disruptions and retail shortages. But as those resolved, the concern around food security seems to have dissipated. In this episode, I speak with Evan Fraser, director of the Arrow Food Institute at the University of Guelph, about how covid has exacerbated an ongoing problem of food insecurity, both in the developed and in the developing worlds. We talk about the causes of food insecurity and what we might do in both the short and long terms to address it. My name is Mike von Massow and this is the Food Focus Podcast. Before I turn to the conversation I want to say thanks again for listening. Our audience continues to grow and that's largely because people like you tell their friends to listen and we very much appreciate it. If you enjoy Give us a positive review wherever you get your podcasts. This helps people find us by moving us up in searches. One of the challenges in COVID is recording remotely. We do the best we can on sound quality. Evan was at a cottage on Georgian Bay for this recording. While Max will do his best to clean things up in post-production, you may hear some breaks in this recording, his neighbor's lawnmower, or even the sounds of waves hitting the shore. I apologize for the distraction, but believe the content of our conversation makes it worth it. So now, without further delay, here is my conversation with Evan on food insecurity. Hello, Evan, it's great to talk to you again. And and this, this time uh, I, I've been really looking forward to a conversation with you about something that I think has gotten lost a little bit in all of the discussions about the food system you and I have spent a bunch of time talking to the media about the resiliency of the food system. How we've, with some ex, with with some issues in the first two weeks, how the food system has continued to to deliver food uh, to Canadians to North Americans uh, on a on a predictable and and consistent basis. What we haven't talked about really is has has the pandemic and the the, the changes that it has brung. Uh, changed food security issue for Canadians for North Americans. Have have we have we increased uh, food security or have we compromised food security? Even though we've we've brought products to the grocery store.
1: Well, I think that one of the big unsung stories, probably in terms of food, the largest long term legacy of COVID will be the incredible rise in food insecurity, which is people. Unable to afford food, and this isn't to do with our ability to produce food or move move through food from farms into processing facilities and into grocery stores. It has everything to do with the ability of people to afford food because they've lost their wages and lost their jobs. And um, the statistics uh, in Canada and globally are 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 startling, horrific even, and um, and we are seeing a incredibly significant rise in food insecurity all over the world right now.
0: And is the cause consistent? Because I I would agree with you 100% that that in Canada, food security issues, to a large degree, both before and after COVID, have or food insecurity issues have been driven by income rather than availability. While we do have some issues, particularly in the north, sometimes with access to food, mostly it is the ability to afford that but to uh, hear you say it you think in the developing world in emerging economies is is it an income issue as well
1: yeah i i believe it is and and say for in in india for instance where they've seen remarkable increases in food insecurity it's people unable you know agricultural workers not being paid to get because they had the lock down because they couldn't so they couldn't get into the field so in that sort of case it's It's both. uh, Oh, we can't get the harvest off, but also the people we're paying to get the we would have been paying to get the harvest off aren't being paid right now because they're in lockdown. And as a consequence, so it's in Canada, it's it's purely a wage issue. Whereas in South Asia, my understanding is it's both a wage uh, or access issue as well as an availability um, issue. And and the you know the the head of the World Food Program about six or eight weeks ago, said the world fa- faces, quote, famines of biblical proportions as a consequence of this. Um, the latest uh, United Nations state of food insecurity on the world shows a significant increase in food insecurity, probably a doubling this year uh, of hungry people, um, reinforcing the fact we're actually living on a planet that has rising rates of obesity and hunger at the same time, which, which is another of these horrible ironies of the moment. Um, and in Canada, I mean, I think it was just um, just in early uh, July 25th or so, Food Banks Canada and the Toronto Food Bank and the group of the emergency food aid people in, our, in Canada put out a, um, a, a, a series of statistics suggesting that um, food bank use has tripled since the beginning of the, um, the lockdown in Canada. And, um, you know, the federal government responded early in the process and put $100 million into um, emergency food relief. And that was seen as, uh, as very effective and, and really helped mitigate the, um, the worst of the problem initially, meant that the food banks had products to give out to people who had lost their jobs. But, um, but this isn't a problem that's going away anytime soon and uh, isn't a problem just in Canada, unfortunately.
0: I, I agree. And I, you've, you've raised several points that I'd like to follow up on. The, the first gets to, you know, you talked about the federal government putting $100 million uh, into into food banks to ensure that for those that needed it, the food was there and available. I think that the other thing that we need to be cognizant of is, is many of the investments that the federal government and provincial governments, frankly, have made in allowing you know cerb which which provided money for people who'd lost their jobs the wage subsidy which allowed companies to continue to employ people and pay them even though demand had had gone away those are also frankly income supports which which are critical to a significant degree to the issue of food insecurity
1: yep so we we have we have very successfully i think marshaled some policies in canada which has made the worst of the food security problems uh, not go away, but has blunted, blunted the worst of their effects. And, and all of the programs that you have just uh, just listed were the, are the ones that I would list and, and have, have really meant that, that, that Canadians aren't going hungry as much as they otherwise would have, given the extraordinary loss of economic activity in this country. So if the restaurants, if there hadn't been served. If there hadn't been the wage support and there hadn't been the money put into food banks, then the levels of, you know, real food insecurity that we would have seen in this country would have been just eye-watering. So thank goodness we live in a society that has done those things. And that's something I'm grateful for. I don't take for granted, but I'm also very proud to live in a country that has done those things. How we recover from this uh, and address then the systemic issue, those one in 10 or so Canadians who were already... Uh, food insecure before the crisis and who will have been added to from the crisis. Uh, again, this this exposes this this crisis exposes things that were already wrong, but we were sort of papering over before. And really, has COVID has brought them to light in a in a new and pressing way? I think.
0: I, I think you you raise an a critically important point, and I think from a policy perspective, this is one that I've been that that i've been critical of a, a little bit where people have stepped up and said this is a covid related problem which frankly i think will make us think in terms of short-term solutions rather than at as you said the, the the fundamental issues that were that that existed before covid came and will exist after covid whatever the post-covid world looks like and the, and that the pandemic has only exacerbated these issues. And, and if we think about them as COVID-related issues, we run the risk of, of, of putting a Band-Aid on rather than looking at fundamental solutions.
1: Yeah, if COVID gives us anything or if there's some silver linings to be looked for here, it's that maybe we can take the moment where COVID has thrown some of the problems of our society into stark relief and we can take stock and think, okay, can we, can we actually create a more resilient, more equitable system rolling forward? And if, if we don't take advantage of this crisis in that way, we will have, you know, suffered for naught. I mean, all the challenges, all the hardships, all the, the anxieties and, and, and troubles that we've experienced over the last five months or so. Um, won't have a long-term positive legacy. I think we do have an opportunity to create a long-term positive legacy. I think COVID has brought a lot of issues that were present, has brought them sort of foregrounded them or brought them right right up in front of us. And um, and we've, we can both deal with the acute problems caused by COVID, but also the chronic problems caused by, by our economy more generally. And that would, I would really hope, you know, if I have one COVID wish, it's that one. <laughs>
0: yeah. I'm going to come back to sort of Canada and, and what we might do. I, I wanted to go back to the developing world for a moment. I, I was struck that the example you provided of enhanced food security was of farm workers in India. And I think that's compounds the problem because they're not picking the crops. But as we have an increasingly urbanized world even in the developing uh, market we have people who who are are buying food with what they've earned today and the lockdown has to a significant degree you know these taxi drivers the you know the the people in the informal economy who've been locked down have have become critically uh, food insecure because not only are they not making money but they're not even able to go out and buy buy foodstuffs if there is access to them. So so this is a this is a not a not just a rural problem but a but but an urban problem across all of the poor in the developing world.
1: Yep. And and another major source of income that has been closed down to the poor parts poorer parts of the world in the last four months it, uh, touches back on a previous conversation you and I had about labor, which is of course remittances. This is people Largely from the developing world, moving to places for short periods of time, such as Canada, uh, working in a range of capacities, usually agriculture or construction or, or domestic. The archetypal Jamaican strawberry picker or Filipino nanny or one of you know these are stereotypes that I'm I'm referring to, of course, but but you know people who find themselves in those sort of contexts, um, and 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 the opportunity for families to make remittances has dwindled enormously this year. And I was looking up some statistics recently on remittances, and remittances actually are more valuable than all of the world's official development assistance. So you imagine all of the money that Canada, the U.S., Britain, etc., spend on official development assistance. is pales in comparison with the amount of money that's remitted back home, largely in agriculture, domestic, and construction work. And the ability for a person to go abroad, work for a period of time, and send money home this year has been seriously curtailed. And I've, I've, I've heard that remittances actually make up the bulk of, say, the Philippines' GDP. So you think of, you think of all those, quote, illustrative Filipino nannies who are not able to work right now. Um, and that's, that's a vital source of, of income for the country of the Philippines. Like, that's, that's a massive part of their gross domestic product. Is the money that's remitted home, and again, so we've lost the agricultural labor, we've lost all the stuff that you just talked about in the informal economy—the taxi drivers, the tuk-tuk drivers, or the rickshaw runners, or whatnot—and we've lost all of those remittances. Or I say we, I mean these, the people in the developing world, and um, and this—it's—it's—it's it's, it's this sort of cumulative effect of all of these blows, which has caused organizations like the World Food Program to say that food insecurity is off the charts this year. We have. We have erased 20 years of gains of chipping away at hunger and malnutrition around the world. We've erased 20 years of gains. And that, and, that, and I keep coming back in my mind to um, the head of the World Food Program saying to the U.S. Congress, I think it was in April or May, uh, the world faces famines of biblical proportions unless we do something.
0: Yeah, In this case, is these fam- famines of biblical proportions are, again, income-driven famines rather than, than what we would sort of, when we've seen these sort of… Okay, yeah, that's a good point yes emerging famines that have been sort of uh related to crop failures and stuff and, and i'm not trying to highlight the difference but why well, I, no I, i'm not trying to say oh this is wrong or this is wrong i'm trying to highlight the difference because the way we deal with them are different is is super good point and you know when when we've had famines where 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 there have been you know multi-year droughts and and crop failures we've often mobilized access to food and getting lots of food there. And, and in many of these circumstances, the issue isn't food access, either in Canada or in the developing world. In this particular instance, the famines of biblical proportions are driven by, by income issues rather than access issues
1: uh availability issues i think you mean so access yeah, yes is, availability yeah. access access is yeah. income sorry yeah. availability yeah. issues <laughs> you're, you're flipping around your somewhat uh obscure food security language yes they're income related yeah. issues they're not whether the food's there it's whether people can afford the food is yeah. the fundamental cause of the the concern right now and so you're you're absolutely spot on and when someone's you're right when someone says Salmons of biblical proportions. The immediate image that I have in my mind is a cloud of locusts eating crops, and that's that actually, in that regard, conjures the wrong image. What we're talking about is unemployed people who can't go to the grocery store and buy food,
0: or can't go to the local market or and exactly. and buy these essential food products. And I,
1: yeah, thanks for being clear on that point because you're completely right. And, and,
0: and it's it's important that we think about that in terms of uh, of current and future development aid but also i think it's it's the exact same problem currently and historically relative to food insecurity in in canada and north america and the developed world is we have pockets of of issues with availability but for us it's fundamentally affordability that contributes to to food insecurity in in the canadian or north american context
1: I complete, completely agree with that, and it's 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 the affordability side of things that COVID has 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 taken out of out of people's hands. And um, you know, when the restaurants closed, I mean, a million people lost their jobs in about a one-week period in Canada. Like, that's that's a jaw-dropping statistic, and and it happened just. Very recently.
0: And what's interesting is the people who lost their jobs were, were often at the lower end of the income spectrum anyway.
1: Yeah, with relatively little savings and very little in the way of benefits or, or safety nets to fall back on other than that which society, you know, the government provided.
0: Exactly right. There, there was just no buffer there. So we exacerbated the income gaps that we had in this country as COVID came because, uh, you know, those of us who were lucky enough to keep our jobs really, in many ways, ate exactly as we always had.
1: Exactly. And uh, you can see how COVID was, I'm mean, just going to re- rephrase what you said, it's, uh, was it yet another wedge in society that divided the haves from the have-nots. And um, luckily... Goodness, luckily, we have a government that, you know, imperfectly and in some regards inefficiently and in other aspects inadequately, but stepped up to a large extent and uh, at municipal, provincial, federal levels and um, took the brunt of the problem on so that it, it could have been a whole lot worse, I guess is what I'm saying, um, because the people who are least able to adapt were also the most exposed to the problem. And, um, and that's the role for policy, right, to, to, ste- to step into those gaps. And um, thank, thank goodness, we had some decent policy this year. I'm sometimes
0: amazed that that a federal bureaucracy that that struggled with Phoenix pay system as much <laughs> as it did, so efficiently and effectively delivered. Uh, you know, I, I've heard some complaints, but but I've been amazed at how quickly programs were developed, cash was put out into uh, into people's hands. To me, it's been remarkable yeah. how governments have, to a significant degree, responded, and it's highlighted, I think, in some in some other jurisdictions, uh, how lucky we've been in terms of the response. We can we can get into arguments around specifics of policy, but in terms of es- execution, I think we've been very lucky here in Canada.
1: I mean, just like I, I try to say thank you on a regular basis to the people in the food system who kept picking strawberries and processing meat and stocking grocery store shelves all throughout the crisis and allowed me to keep going to the grocery store and buying food that was safe and affordable and high quality. I'd like to say thank you to the, you know, the civil servants and the bureaucrats at, at all levels of government in Canada who, you know, imperfectly and, and in some ways inadequately, but ultimately delivered Canada an enormous service that I think meant that we could, um, we have weathered this storm or we are weathering, let's not counter chickens before they're hatched. We are weathering the storm much better than um, could have happened.
0: I, I couldn't agree more. We're, we're agreeing violently. And just as we wrap <laughs> up, uh, as we wrap up, I, I thought I would ask you the question. So at some point, while the world will may, may be different, we will hopefully uh, be in a situation where we aren't worried about the constant emergence of another wave of infection. We get into some sort of post-COVID reality. And in that circumstance, the risk is that we take a breath and say, oh, phew, we made it through, let's drive on as as always. And as we said earlier, the issue of food insecurity existed before COVID, was exacerbated during COVID, but, but will exist after COVID. In broad strokes from a high level, what sort of policy things do we need to be thinking about to reduce those levels of food insecurity?
1: Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna actually dodge that question. I, I I could answer it. I have a series of, of a shopping list that I, I could lay on you, but I think actually what's needed is for experts to do a serious job of listening to the people who have experienced food insecurity, who have experienced other aspects of challenges associated with COVID, because my perch is uh, from a university position, a you know, middle-aged guy from a university position. I don't. I, I could certainly make proclamations, but I would. I would be worried that I, I'm not capturing the voices. And so this is a very roundabout way of making a plug for a program that, that I, I've helped initiate in the last month, where we're trying to actually get people um, host events, do interviews, ask the public for input on their experiences of what we learned about food and COVID, food insecurity, agriculture, labor, the whole gamut, and what we should ultimately should do about prevent a problem like this from emerging and to address um, uh, the fundamental root causes of food insecurity and inequality in our society. And so I guess, I'm, I'm, this is a plug to, to your listeners, that um, at the Errol Food Institute or the Canadian Agri-Food Policy Institute's webpage, we have a program called Growing Stronger and, and we're looking for input. Because I think over the next six months, uh, the government is going to start saying, OK, we need to make, do some learning from this and let's, let's try to learn some lessons. And I think that the right place to start putting a stronger world together is to actually listen to the voices of people who have experienced things in the last five months and, and beyond and try to build something from scratch. So uh, a bit of a plug Rather than an answer to your question, there, Mike. I, hope that's well, okay. uh,
0: I, I think that was an amazing answer to my question because I, uh, I think that that you know. People like you and I often stand up and say, "Here's what we think," and I think we can contribute to the discussion. But we probably don't spend enough time casting a broader net for perspectives to understand what are things that what are some things that we can do differently, and and not just relating to food security or food insecurity. But uh, too many people across the system, and and I myself am probably guilty of it at times, is get very quickly into tell mode and not, not as quickly into listen and understand mode. I think you're right. It is a fundamental need, something that we need to fundamentally to do better in order to not only get the best answers, uh, but to gain commitment and, and engagement and consensus on moving to those, big, to those better answers.
1: Bingo! Couldn't couldn't agree with what You said more. Yep. Violent violent agreement again.
0: <laughs> violent agreement again. Well, what a uh, what an excellent place to wrap up, Evan. As always, I appreciate your perspectives, and I look forward to to more conversations in the future.
1: Sounds great, Mike. I hope you stay well, and I hope we can um, actually see each other again at some point soon-ish.
0: <laughs> a- exactly. All the best. Stay safe. Yeah. Take care, Mike. Bye now. As we wrap up another episode, I want to take a moment to thank Max Graham. We get to have the interesting discussions, and he does the hard work to make us sound good. I also want to thank Zach von Massow for the original music that we use in the podcast. Check out foodfocusguelph.ca. We have a blog that is updated regularly and our Food Focus Trend Report as well. You can contact us through the website or at foodfocus at uoguelph.ca if you have any questions or suggestions. We appreciate our audience and your recommendation. It helps us grow. If you are so inclined, give us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews move us up the ladder and help others find us. That's it for now. Thanks again for listening and stay in touch.